0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. If you follow the news, you might remember that a few weeks back, the attorney general of Texas was impeached in his state's legislature for many well-publicized acts of mischief and alleged criminality. The official, Ken Paxton, was acquitted by the 31 members of the Texas Senate, one of whom was Paxton's wife, though she recused herself from the vote. Paxton now says he'll file criminal complaints against the lawmakers who led his impeachment. Texas politics, long known for producing colorful characters and larger-than-life dramas, are the subject of a new novel by our guest, veteran journalist and author Lawrence Wright. Wright is probably best known for his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Looming Tower, about the rise of Al-Qaeda, which was also a Hulu series, and Going Clear, his book about Scientology, which became an Emmy-winning documentary that aired on HBO. Wright has also written screenplays, musicals, and performed a one-man show about his research into Al-Qaeda. He wrote a nonfiction book about the changing character of his home state, titled God Save Texas. His new novel looks at the Texas legislature through the story of a fictional rancher who's cast by circumstance into a successful race for the state house, where he sees how things really work in the Capitol. The result is funny, revealing, and thought-provoking. Though he's lived for decades in Austin, Lawrence Wright has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1992. His new novel is titled Mr. Texas. I should also mention that uh, as we record this, I'm suffering some symptoms from COVID. I'm going to be fine, but you may find my voice is just a little off. Lawrence Wright, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thanks, Dave. I, and I hope you uh, recover quickly. I trust I will. I trust I yeah. will. I was vaccinated and all. You know, this book, apart from being a fun read, which it is, uh, raises a question, why should people across the country care about what happens in Texas politics?
2: Well, no matter what you think about Texas, it's growing so fast that by the year 2050, it's projected to be this, about the size of California and New York combined. Imagine, you know, uh, right now it's a you know very important force in American politics, but To be that big, to have, uh, you know, so many electoral votes, it will be the future of America. There's no way around it. And I just don't think that Americans and even Texans have taken in how consequential this
1: growth is. Before we get to the the fictional story, tell us a, a real story about Texas politics that gives us a sense of how, well, weird it can be. <laughs> well, first of all, let
2: me say I, I have a lot of affection for the state, despite my criticisms. Uh, but it, historically, first of all, I will say that you know Texas has never really been corrupt. Uh, we only, before Ken Paxton, the only statewide official we ever impeached in our whole long history, uh, was the governor named James Pa Ferguson in 1917. And uh, voters were so upset they elected his wife to succeed him. So it didn't really strike much of a chord then. But that you know, it wasn't like Illinois or New Jersey or New York, you know, where we you know you have uh, a history of of corruption until lately. And this is what really concerns me about the state. Um, It's not under the table. Uh, during the Paxton trial, just before it began, for instance, two Midland oil men uh, provided the, the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, uh, with $3 million, $1 million down and $2 million as a loan. Uh, and clearly, you know, they openly favored uh, acquitting Ken Paxton.
1: So uh, and that's what happened. Right right we should we should note that the lieutenant governor was presiding over the trial in the senate so yeah he, he was the judge yeah. yeah and he
2: and he brought the force of his office on uh, you know the votes within the senate so uh it that's not the kind of thing that has happened in the past in Texas. Uh, we've had some you know, weird scandals like uh, Bo Pilgrim, this chicken magnate, once uh, decades ago, walked out on the floor of the state Senate and passed out $10,000 checks to his supporters. Uh, but that's, you know, the, it's uncommon uh, to have the, the kind of corruption that we're seeing right now.
1: You know, the voice that I hear as I read this book is that of a colorful Texas storyteller. Let me, let me give you an example. I mean, there, you, there's a scene where, you're, where a lobbyist is talking to a new member of the legislature. All I ask is that you open your door to me, he said, in a voice that poured honey on a biscuit. Over 10,000 bills will come up this season. My clients care for only a few. Most of the rest nobody gives a country crap about. Was it a conscious decision for you to write like one of these characters? <laughs> oh.
2: Well, I love the way Texans talk. The vocabulary, the the jargon, you know, it's it's very juicy. And as a writer, it was fun, uh, to be able to pick up on the language and uh it's a it's the language gives you a window on the kind of soul of the state. You know, it's uh, you know, the, there's a playfulness about the language, uh, which you know, as a writer, I'd be a fool to turn away from because this is so much fun uh, to to put those words in the mouths of people
1: who resemble people who really do exist. Was there a particular politician or journalist or? Lobbyist or operative that you talked to a lot that helped inspire some of the the writing here, oh yeah,
2: I mean, I owe many debts uh you know there's a character that it is the Speaker of the House, Big Bob Bigby, who is more than loosely <laughs> modeled on uh the former lieutenant governor Bob Bullock uh who was married five times, just like uh, Big Bob was, and uh a chaotic individual, you know, a, a, a drunk who struggled with alcohol his entire life. And and yet, despite all of his personal scandals, everybody knew that he loved the state of Texas and would do it no harm. And that's how he survived in politics. Uh, I thought that, you know, those were qualities that I could work with. And, you know, there's a, a journalist that, you know, harkens back a bit, maybe to Molly Ivins, um, who was able to kind of stride the, the divide between journalism and politics uh, in a way that few people in, in Texas have ever succeeded in doing. So there are lots of different characters have gone into the mix, but you could think of them as ingredients that were poured into this
1: dish. The other thing that's interesting about this book is that it was something like, I don't know, two decades in the making and wasn't always a book. You want to just run down this journey <laughs> yeah. for us in brief?
2: Yeah, this this book has a long tail. Uh, it started as a movie script uh, and uh, never got made. And I had a reading of it and the director said, why don't you do it as a play? and then the next words out of his mouth were we've already rented the theater <laughs> so the presumption <laughs> was pretty impressive and i said well when do we produce it and he said four months so four months i you know i had written the the play and we cast it and rehearsed it and we had two productions in austin and a Broadway producer came down, Margot Lyon, one of the titans of Broadway. And uh, she had done Angels in America and uh, Hairspray. And she said it should be a musical. <laughs> and so I started writing music with my pal, Marsha Ball, one of the revered R&B players in, in Austin. And uh, and then Margot changed her mind and said it should be a television series. So I sold a pilot to HBO. And then HBO fired my executive and dumped all of his projects. So I had nothing. <laughs> and, and I I asked my agent during the pandemic, I've got to do something with this. What do you suggest? And he said, podcast. <laughs> so I, Marcia and I and my son Gordon started uh, writing songs again for the podcast, but You know, podcasts are meant to be inexpensive, and uh, we had a cast of like 15 and need a full band, so it was like we built a ship in the basement and we couldn't get it up the steps. (laughs) Then, finally, it occurred to me that, actually, I am a book writer, (laughs) so (laughs) I decided I would write it as a novel. And I know it sounds weird and extravagant to have gone through all these iterations, but... All of that helped me in the construction of the novel, having seen it from so many different perspectives. Uh, it came off really rapidly, and I had a lot of
1: joy uh, in the writing of it. So let's let's uh, talk a bit about the story here. Uh, it's centered around a struggling rancher who gets drawn into politics. He'd never even voted before. T- tell us about this guy, Sonny Lamb, as in lamb to the slaughter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, in
2: defense, I will have to say that Lamb is a common name out in West Texas and so but it does suit the um, the the mood for bringing our character on stage. Uh Sonny is a like a lot of, you know, ranchers out in West Texas, he's facing ruin because of the drought. It's been crippling in Texas. And he's selling off his herd and in general he feels like he doesn't count for anything. And he wants to make a mark in the world. At that point, uh, a lobbyist appeared, L.D. Sparks. And there's the representative from District 74 uh, has just passed away. And L.D. is looking for someone to replace him, who he can count on, a pet vote. And um, it happens that he sees a a television clip in which Sonny rescues a, a little girl from a burning barn and then goes back in and saves the horse. And it's a perfect piece of political uh, footage and LD knows what he can do with it. So he convinces Sonny uh, he should run for office and LD promises he can get him elected. Uh, Of course, the assumption on the part of the lobbyist is that this guy is going to do my bidding and uh, that turns out to be an error. <laughs> uh, the architecture of the the novel is the struggle uh, between this idealist from West Texas and the
1: cynic who really controls the Texas House of Representatives. You know, I'm interested in the part of Texas that this is set in. I mean, the ranch where Sonny Lamb has toiled for so long with his wife Lola. Um, Texas is a geographically diverse state, and this is... A part of the state I have great affection for. You, you want to just talk a little bit about it? Oh
2: yeah. Well, let's start with the fact that it's big. I mean, it's uh, everybody knows Texas is big, but this one house district that Sonny Lamb represents, District Seventy Four, is larger than Connecticut. Uh, and you know, low population. Uh, it's arid, dry, but majestic uh, in its way. Uh, you know it. It actually has, uh, you know, a lot of—it's sort of a high desert. Uh, You know, there are mountains, and uh, it's still—it's very, very dry, especially during this drought. And it's—you know, you drive through West Texas, you see a lot of abandoned towns. Uh, Some were once big oil towns. Then, you know, they've all dried up it's It's different from East Texas in that way, which is you know still kind of you know well populated and affluent, but West Texas has had a real struggle, and the, the drought is bringing that section of the state to its knees, so that's what Sonny is coping with the loss of everything that he values in his home uh because of the drought, and yet he determines that there's a solution which is an aquifer underfoot uh. A vast aquifer that is salty. And that's the reason it's not used for irrigation. But he hits on the idea that a desalination plant would be the salvation of the West Texas way of life.
1: The lobbyist who recruits this rancher to run for the legislature, L.D. Sparks, is it turns out a really powerful guy in the state capitol. And this is interesting because you think of lobbyists, I mean the, the term comes from you know, representatives of industry or whatever that hang out in the lobby and try and catch members because, you know, they're supplicants. They're not the people who are running things. But in some respects, this particular lobbyist is one of them is more powerful than most of the elected officials. Is that common? And how does that happen? Well,
2: I know a lot of lobbyists, I have to say. Uh, You can't live in Austin very long without, you know, knowing and making friends with lobbyists because they're a very friendly group of people. You know, uh, lobbyists are not just the people that stand in the lobby and, and grab people by the elbow. Uh, a lot of times, they write the bills. They, you know, they do the work of the legislator uh, to bring bills forward. A lot of times, you know, you imagine somebody like Sonny Lamb coming into the legislature. He's never read a bill, much less written one, and 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 so the lobbyist will uh, help him. Uh, write out a bill that will get through the committee and will help him know who to go to on the committee to talk to, how to how to politic your bill to the floor. And uh, but of course, the lobbyist is doing this for the bills that he wants to get passed. And so you get a massive amount of help when you're doing something the lobbyist wants. The other thing is that when you when you get to the legislature before the, the the first day of the opening of the legislature, lobbyists will line up uh, to give you money, uh, and there are you know a different offices or clubs where uh, uh, members of the legislature will sit and receive a line of you know a couple of hundred uh, lobbyists coming to. Put checks in their pocket. And this is... All legal. <laughs> it's it's it's. But it, you know, they, it, they want uh, the member to open their door to them. That's the language that they will use. And it's not a guarantee of a vote. But uh, it's thought to be poor sportsmanship if you're taking uh, money from people who are on different sides of a of a of an issue. Uh, you know, if you've already made up your mind about school vouchers, for instance, then you shouldn't
1: be taking money from the public schools. You know, this this was a scene in the book, which one of many scenes where I would read and say, is this real? I mean, I think, you know, Texas politics can be so outsized that it probably is hard to parody in some ways, right? I mean, just the stories themselves are so wild. But this is a story where this new lawmaker who's brand new to this, the lobbyist, Takes him in a room. It's called the Austin Club, and then literally dozens of lobbyists from you know the auto dealers and the, you know whoever come in and hand checks their campaign contributions, I guess. And his reaction, the lawmaker's reaction, is this legal? And and it is because it's reported. But wow, is, is this common? Do you think in other legislatures?
2: Every legislator does it. It's 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 not just common; it's universal. And honestly, most of them don't have a choice. They don't get enough money to support their office. They have to have an office in their district, at least one. Uh, they have to have a, a staff, uh, and they only get paid, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. Only when the legislature's in session, which is only every other year. So, you know, there's there's a dire need for <laughs> income, and uh,
1: it's the lobbyists that support it. You know, you write in the book that many of the legislatures in the Capitol, you say, actually believe that climate change is a problem and that we need reasonable gun laws, you know, and immigration reform, but none of them can say so or vote that way. Do you find that to be true in, in among lawmakers at the Capitol?
2: I guess the way I would respond to that is that there are certain people with a great deal of power uh, because of their affinity with things like the uh, Freedom Caucus or something like that, who are the people determining policy for the Republicans in this state. And not every Republican agrees with it, but most of them don't want to be seen as getting out of bounds. And... Behind all of that is the power of the oil and gas industry. It's it's you cannot underestimate uh, the force of all that money on Texas politics. An example is you know during our big freeze a couple of years ago, uh, where two hundred and forty Texans died, many of them froze to death after the power grid went down. Oil field operators made billions of dollars, uh, because we had this adjustable rate for charging for elect- for power. And uh, so, you know, something that might have been a few hundred dollars became tens of thousands of dollars for energy. And they simply took that money. Uh, they had been instructed by the legislature years ago to winterize uh, their facilities, and they failed to do that. So, One of the pipeline operators uh, sent a check to Greg Abbott, our governor, for a million dollars in gratitude, I'm sure. But that was just one example of the money that flooded into the pockets of Texas legislators uh, who decided not to hold the oil and gas industry responsible for the breakdown of our energy grid and instead passed the cost along to its consumers, which we'll be living with for decades.
1: We're going to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Lawrence Wright. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of 13 previous books. His new novel is Mr. Texas. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama, Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR.
3: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
2: I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, back with a reminder about our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, available just for our Fresh Air Plus supporters.
0: I found it just
1: very, very useful to not be a journalist. I mean, journalists drop into a situation, ask a question, people sort of tighten up. Whereas if you sit down with people and just say, hey, what makes you happy? What's your life like? What do you like to eat? More often than not, they will tell you extraordinary things, many of which have nothing to do with food.
2: The latest producer postcard revisits our 2016 interview with the late chef and author Anthony Bourdain. You can hear more for yourself by joining Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org.
1: We're speaking with Lawrence Wright. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of many books, including The Looming Tower about the rise of Al-Qaeda and Going Clear about Scientology. His latest is a novel about the colorful world of Texas politics, his home state. It's a funny, satirical look at the state legislature through the eyes of a struggling rancher who's plucked from obscurity by a political operative to take a seat in the state house. The book is called Mr. Texas. You know, we talked about how Texas politics can be hard to parody, and one of the most remarkable things that you describe— is what's called Budget Night in the legislature. It's the 90th day of the session, which, as I, I gather, the Constitution requires that all the budget bills must be enacted. And so you have all of these members, and the fate of their special causes or projects will be decided in crafting the budget. And they may or may not get funding. Their funding might be go to somebody else. And so it's a hectic a time, and, and this is the way you describe it. On the afternoon before budget night, members and staffers begin to wander the hallway, searching out the margarita machines in various offices. By midnight, the level is such that few could legally drive. If they were too drunk to stand, state troopers would escort them out, and the night was just getting started. You also note that five-hour energy shots were available, some of which uh, members downed once an hour. Really? <laughs> this really happened? Oh yeah, and
2: and uh in order to try to keep uh the legislators cogent, uh, they turn the air conditioner down to, you know, I don't know it's frigid in there. And uh, members have learned to wear long underwear or carry blankets into the house. Uh <laughs> it's, it's all an attempt to keep them awake. And uh, that would be a problem even if it weren't for the margarita machines.
1: Wow. I just I'm just stunned to read that that lawmakers would actually be drinking while they're dealing with this legislation which is some of the most consequential bills that will pass in the session. I guess if you're not doing anything but 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 casting a vote as you are instructed it doesn't yeah. matter if you're inebriated but boy hard to believe.
2: Yeah and and also you know things can get volatile uh because the truth comes out on budget night, uh, which lots and lots of bills that may have passed don't get funded. And uh, people start uh, making trades or sabotaging another lawmaker's bill uh, in order to get money for his, and And it can get really rough. And, you, you know, sometimes, you know, a couple of sessions ago, it got kind of physical and it's not surprising uh, given that you know, inebriation is a problem and, uh, and people feel after all of this, they get to budget night and they see their dreams flushed down the drain because some other lawmaker is able to poach the money that is gonna, was going to supply the, the ability for your bill to become a law.
1: You know, when you and I spoke in 2018 about your book, God Save Texas, which was nonfiction, um, you pointed out that Texas is already the second most populous state in the country and growing rapidly, and that if it were turned from a red state politically to a blue state or even a purple state, it would have a huge impact on the country. And you said the demographic changes are such that that is likely sooner or later. Do you still think so? Oh, yeah, I do.
2: But, you know, everybody who has longed for change has been so frustrated. Uh, but if you look at the demography, you know, we people are moving to Texas, you know, it's just half a million year uh, every year. And uh, most of them are moving into cities which are all blue, even Fort Worth, which was last to change. Uh, and the suburbs are becoming increasingly blue, Uh It's already a minority majority state, Uh, so the Hispanic vote, although it's beginning to lean towards the Republicans, is still uh, usually Democratic. And young people, uh, Texas is a very young state, and there are a lot of young people in Texas that are furious uh, about issues such as climate change and abortion. So those trends are all working against the Republican Party. And in its defense, what they are doing is, uh, you know, trying to attack the ability of people to actually vote and gerrymanding districts so that they, the Republicans will be as they are overrepresented uh, in the Congress. So, you know, but that's a, that's a rearguard action. And uh, it's, it's going to change. It's just a matter of when. And also, you know, there's a great need for appealing candidates on the, on the Democratic side.
1: Earlier this year, you wrote a long piece in The New Yorker about Austin, your home city. And I should also note that that's where I went to college, University of Texas, and I have family there. Um, the title of the article is The Astonishing Transformation of Austin, Texas. What is astonishing?
2: Well, first of all, when you drive around Austin, if you haven't been in a neighborhood for the last couple of months, uh, it's, you know, it's totally changed. This is every place in Austin, and it's, you know, I was, my wife and I uh, got to spend a night in a hotel downtown uh, several months ago, and uh, we opened the blinds and we looked out the window and we didn't recognize a single thing. I didn't, we couldn't even tell what direction we were facing. And in the view of the, from the window, there were 10 building cranes. So there's a sense of this town that we moved to in 1980 has been buried by another town. And I still love the town, you know, whatever it is, but it's not the place that we moved to. And it's... You know, it's alienating in some ways and exciting in others. You know, Austin has just become uh, the 10th largest city in America. And that means four of the top 10 most populous cities uh, in America are in Texas. And so it's, you know, the most urban state in America.
1: We are speaking with Lawrence Wright. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new novel is called Mr. Texas. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at First Drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. On
1: NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe.
2: Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
3: From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: You know, you're a, somebody who writes about national issues, a lot of them. But, you know, you're not living in New York or Washington. And one of the things that I th- think you've said is that a lot of your f- colleagues who live in New York, for example, don 't know any Republicans, but yeah. you do um, and i 'm yeah. wondering what are your interactions with republicans and, and and why does it matter Well, first of all, I think the best period of Texas politics
2: in modern times was when George Bush was governor, and Pete Laney was the speaker and, and Bob Bullock was the the lieutenant governor. It was a period of amity in Texas politics. And as a matter of fact, both Laney and Bullock endorsed Bush for president, Uh, you know, two Democrats that supported him. That was a period of time I look back with, you know, with fondness and also a great sense of regret that we can't get back to that. I would describe myself as a centrist. Uh, I don't feel committed to the politics of either the Democratic or the Republican party. I my my goal is, you know, pragmatism and compassion. You know, those are the and unfortunately that right now Texas has neither in its leadership. But there are a lot of Republican friends that I have that feel exactly the same way. They feel homeless They don't have a party that, you know, they they have been deserted by their party. And uh, I think that it's not just a Texas thing, but it's a very pronounced feeling in Texas. The alienation and the war within the GOP, uh, which played out in the Paxton trial very clearly, you know, is something that I think is spreading nationally. And uh, it's leaving a lot of disaffected Republicans in its wake.
1: You know you're right that you and your wife moved to Austin in nineteen eighty, and your wife in particular decided this is this is where she wants to put down roots she's not leaving and The one thing I wonder is how can you stand the summers now i mean i I was there for five days in early September. the high every day was over a hundred degrees. <laughs> it was hellish this year
2: i you know I don't know how how it's going to affect the state if if next year is like this one you know, one wants to think is exceptional. And we've had, you know, hot years before that and then moderated, but nothing, no history, in all our history, we've never had a summer like that. And I think it's going to have political consequences. Uh, One time I had lunch with Ted Cruz and, you know, we were sort of hashing out our differences. And, uh, and I brought up you know, Ted, climate change, are you serious? And and he said, Well, Larry, you know, that there are satellites in space that haven't detected a, a change in Earth's temperature in 70 years. And I said, Well, Ted, there are thermometers on Earth <laughs> that have <laughs> done a pretty good job of detecting it. Uh, we're in a difficult spot in Texas in that oil and gas is still the king. And yet Texas, as much as any state in the nation, is suffering the consequence of human-caused climate change. So that's the paradox. And we have to get ahead of it because, once again, Texas is leading the the nation. The good side of it is, you know, (laughs) alongside the oil and gas industry, uh, we have, you know, more wind power than any other state. Uh, we're increasing our solar power. So, you know, Texas has done a good job, even though they don't, you know, the political leaders don't talk about it, uh, providing alternative energy. And we need to go further down that road.
1: You know, as, as a native Texan myself, I sometimes encounter people, particularly, you know, politically progressive folks, who just hate Texas. I mean, you know, you, you lead the world in executions. You know, you wouldn't take the Medicaid expansion. You know, you have a miserly social social service network. When you hear these things, how do you react? What do you say? Well, I
2: feel the same way about, you know, the, those things that you cite, I think, are awful. You know, what Texas needs is more pragmatism and compassion. And those are the very things that it lacks in the current governance. On the other hand, you know, Texas has done a better job than any other state in providing jobs, which is, you know, absolutely essential and I think that's something to be really proud of. I can't help but say that, you know, we have to take a step away from the the culture wars that we're waging now which are not only non-productive they're incredibly divisive. You know, a state has really two obligations. One is to create opportunities. And in in that, I would say, you know, making it possible for businesses to work, making sure the justice system works, making sure our children are educated. You know, these are all ways of creating opportunity. But the other thing that a state or, or a city, any political entity is supposed to do is to create community. And that's where Texas is falling down. And it's not just Texas. It's happening all over the country but Texas sets an example that is very contagious and, and I think it's, it's, it' causes Texas is responsible for a lot of that and it accounts for the reason people hate Texas so much. In a way they don't hate Wisconsin or Michigan or places where you have also you know radical elements you know raging out of control. But Texas stands for all that disunity. And uh, and so we have to shoulder the responsibility of uh, the kind of culture that we've been creating.
1: You know, you know, when I think about some of your work, I mean, you know, you wrote a lot about Al-Qaeda, um, this deeply researched book about the, the road to 9-11, and then this book about Scientology. And th- these were both cases of a lot of people in, you know, in a belief system that radicalized them in a certain way or, or led to extreme views and gave them power to influence others. Do you see any parallel between that kind of mindset and what you see in the legislature in Texas?
2: I guess when you phrase it that way, what occurs to me is the gun culture. Texas, you know, especially our political figures... They are so giddy about guns. They celebrate it. You know, Ted Cruz putting bacon around the barrel of an a- AR-15 and cooking, you know, his Texas breakfast. Oh, uh, man, you know, Greg Abbott holding news conferences at a shooting range. And every time we have a mass shooting, you know, there's, you know, this residue of grief that constantly comes up. And yet... Th- th- we can there's this belief in the second amendment that there's a sense that it is under attack whereas it's triumphant anybody can buy a gun now uh and and it doesn't matter your mental state uh and and the number of killings in Texas is, as as is true everywhere is on the rise and a lot of this is because of the the a cult around guns that is Totally unnecessary, and is very, very damaging to our culture. So, if you're asking me if there's a uh, a parallel with uh, the you know, the religious cults that I've written about in the past, I would say basically, the gun culture is has gone so far that even Republicans think that they've gone too far. And yet they can't seem to find a way to pass red flag laws and, you know, make sure that people are old enough and and know how to handle a weapon and all those sorts of things. They can't find their way back. And so, you know, the extremists have, uh, because of this giddy sense of celebrating guns, and it represents freedom and individuality, and these are things that that Texans value. But it doesn't have to be synonymous with every single person owning a gun.
1: You know, this book, I mean, I won't give away much about it, but it, it takes a hopeful direction, both for this new legislator and for... People in the Capitol, uh, you know, hope that that they'll move away from division and culture wars. Um, How hopeful can you be about this?
2: It's my attempt to nudge the state a little bit in a different direction. Uh, Texas has the qualities that it needs to express. Texas is a very friendly state. It's It's full of very caring people, but not very caring policies. And I think it's perfectly within reach for Texas to become a model for other states. It's got the money. It's got the resources. It just doesn't have the leadership. And if we can make a change in that department, I think that Texas will take its place in a responsible way as being the leader of the rest of the country. And this is hard for Texas because, you know, having grown up in Texas, I'm sure you must have felt the same way. Texans always felt out of the out of the game. You know, the, America was ruled by the cultural elites on either coast, and and as a result, Texas was just kind of this rebellious kid around the corner. You know, wanted to do things his own way, and that's not a good posture for being the leader of America. And that's our destiny. So we we haven't taken it on yet. We need to educate our children more. Uh, we need to provide the infrastructure. We need to you know create a, a path through the problems that beset America, such as climate change and, and, and health care. We can do that. It's just that we haven't addressed it. And that's where I hope that uh, if... Readers in Texas take a message, an author's message from it. I hope that's the one that they get.
1: Well, Lawrence Wright, thanks so much for speaking with us again. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Lawrence Wright is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of 13 previous books. His new novel is Mr. Texas. Coming up, Maureen Corrigan reviews Justin Torres's long-awaited second novel, Blackouts, which has been shortlisted for the National Book Award. This is Fresh Air. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says Torres clearly took the time he needed to write something rich and strange. Here's her review.
3: Blame the Halloween season, but Justin Torres's Blackout strikes me as a traditional novel wearing the costume of experimental fiction. I say that because even though Blackouts is festooned in dizzying layers of tales within tales, photographs, film scripts, scholarly sounding endnotes, and fictionalized accounts of real life figures, at its core is a classic conceit, one that's been dramatized by the likes of Tolstoy, Willa Cather, Marilyn Robinson, and many others. I'm talking about the deathbed scene. Here, that scene consists of a conversation between two friends about the distortions and erasures of queer history. Over a decade has passed since Torres made his mark with his semi-autobiographical debut novel called We the Animals, which was hailed as an instant queer classic and made into a film. Blackouts justifies the wait. The novel opens with the arrival of a 27-year-old man at an eerie, ornate ruin of a building called The Palace, located somewhere in the desert. He's seeking an older man known as Juan Gay. Some 10 years ago, the two men met when they were institutionalized for their sexuality. Now Juan is very sick. And he asks his younger friend, whom he affectionately calls in Spanish, Nene, to promise to remain in the palace and finish the project that had once consumed him. The story of a certain woman who shared his last name, Miss Jan Gay. Jan Gay, it turns out, was the actual pseudonym of Helen Reitman, a real-life queer writer and sex researcher. She was also the daughter of Ben Reitman, known as the Hobo Doctor, who ministered to the poor and who was a lover of the anarchist, Emma Goldman. You see how Juan's stories begin to spiral out, touching history both imagined and true. Nene is oblivious to most of this history. So it's Juan's mission before he dies to enlighten his young friend and, by extension, those of us readers who also need enlightening. Here's how Nene remembers his earliest realization that he had a lot to learn back when he first met Juan and was struck by his quiet self-possession. I was a teenager from nowhere, I saw only that Juan transcended what I thought I knew about sissies. When he spoke, he spoke in allusion. I don't think he expected me to understand directly, but rather wanted me to understand how little I knew about myself, that I was missing out on something grand, a subversive variant culture, an inheritance. Nene's ignorance about that inheritance is not all his own fault, of course. That history was censored, obliterated. That's where Juan's project comes in. He owns a copy of a book, an actual book, called Sex Variants, a study of homosexual patterns that was published in 1941, The book was built on Jan Gay's original research into queer lives and the oral histories that she collected. But that research was twisted by so-called medical professionals who co-opted her work and were intent on categorizing homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder and a crime. Torres's title, Blackouts, refers to the blacking out of pages of Jan Gay's interviews with her queer subjects, pages that are recreated here. Juan and Nene's extended deathbed conversation about sex, family ostracism, Puerto Rican identity, and films they love, like Kiss of the Spider Woman, an inspiration for this novel, is a way of imaginatively restoring some of that forbidden material. Blackouts is the kind of artfully duplicitous novel which makes a reader grateful for Wikipedia. Although Torres supplies what he coyly terms blinkered endnotes to this novel— I found myself checking the sources of almost everything, including illustrations from mid 20th century children's books that Jan Gay wrote with her real life, longtime partner, Jaina Gay. The book banners will flip out when they learn of this actual couple whose children's books may still be lurking on library shelves. But at the still center of this spectacular whirl of talk and play remain the remarkable figures summoned from history and Torres's imagination, whose lives were animated by their outlawed desires. Torres articulates a blinding blizzard of hurt in these pages, yet Nene and Juan give us and themselves much joy too. A kiss to build a dream on.
1: Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Blackouts by Justin Torres. On tomorrow's show, we talk with Jada Pinkett Smith. She dominated headlines with news that she and her husband, famed actor Will Smith, have been separated for seven years. That's just one of several revelations in her new memoir, Worthy. She'll talk about growing up in Baltimore, her career in Hollywood, and her friendship with the late rapper Tupac Shakur. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
0: In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. Tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on